Hello there. Welcome to the Neighbor Food Podcasts. We are your hosts, Jolene and Jack. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> and today we have a very, very sweet topic to talk about. So, Jack, would you agree with me when you say, or when we say, that the Ballymaloo dessert trolley is probably the most famous dessert trolley around? I mean, it even got global recognition at the World Restaurant Awards in Paris in 2019. Yep. And for decades, visitors to Ballymaloo House have looked forward to finishing a delicious meal with something sweet from their tempting dessert trolley. And our guest today is Jay O'Reilly, head pastry chef and the main man responsible for these sensational desserts. So Jay O'Reilly has been working on a baking book simply titled Ballymaloo Desserts, sharing the recipes used in the pastry kitchen for the last couple of years. Now, he has been working in this kitchen since his school days, and the idea came about almost 10 years ago when Hazel Allen asked if he'd be interested in writing this little book to sell from the hall table in Ballymaloo House. <laughs> now, fast forward a decade, the pandemic lands, and the time was perfect for him to put pen to paper and his project took flight. So this little book has evolved into an impressive publication featuring these iconic recipes, along with kind of stories, really stunning photograph by Cleaner Prendergast, an Irish photographer, and it was launched this month, September 2022, in Ireland and around the world. Yeah, and looky me, I did get to go down to the uh, book launch, which happened in the grain store in Ballymaloo, just there in early September. So we are thrilled that JR has agreed to be our guest today. And during this chat, he tells us all about his life in Ballymaloo and the really great inspiration that Mrs. Allen was to him throughout his culinary career. And we hear some of those great stories you mentioned, along with his best love recipes and some kitchen tips for us. And of course, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of book publishing. Like, how did he meet his publisher first? What was it like to sign a book deal? Um, the importance of having a great mentor. And he went into the whole process then of writing, editing, recipe selecting, and then the detail, time and craft really that's involved in photographing each and every recipe. This conversation, it's fascinating, it's fun. And to be honest, it's full of wow. So we hope that you enjoy it. How does it feel finishing a book? It's like a bit of a mountain to climb now. Um, do you know, all the steps were so gradual because, you know, I, friends I have who've written books, like I've only ever just seen the book at the end and I think, oh my God, you've made a book. Yeah. And I never really considered there's so many small steps, like for every bit of the process. So yeah. all along the way, when people were checking in on me, I was like, yeah, you know, another hundred things to do this week, but they're all micro and then suddenly you get a book in the post and I had completely underestimated how emotional I'd feel. Oh, amazing. What was it actually like when you unwrapped the book for the first time? Well, well, first of all, I, I thought it was going to arrive a couple of days before it did. So each day the post, you know, I'd I'd see somebody getting post in the house. I'd run down to the office. Margaret, is, a, is our parcel here for me? And say, no, <laughs> not today. And then one day she just walks into the kitchen, like waving this parcel in the air. And one of the other oh. chefs, Emma, almost screams, follows her into pastry, hands it to me. And I literally said, I can't open this now because the oven was full of bread and I didn't want to get dirt on it. And also just, I was like, it wasn't, it wasn't the moment. So I just cast it one side and came, came back to it 30 minutes later. And, but I opened it on my own and I actually put a video on my Instagram of opening it, but that was the first time I opened it. Like I wasn't pretending and yeah, it was just in a, like a bubble wrap envelope and it was lovely to see what the true colors were like and how heavy it felt and what the paper was like. And then David Tannis wrote a forward, uh, just a one page at the start of it. 
which kind of introduces Ballymaloo, me and the concept of the book. And I read it and I actually cried a little bit and I oh. really hadn't realised I would. Yeah. Um, yeah so Is there anything that. he said in there like that's really beautiful, a line or two? Um, could maybe read well, it. his first line actually sums it up. He says, if you've never been to Ballymaloo, it's hard to describe in a single sentence. And that describes Ballymaloo to me because yeah. like, there's so many bits and wheels to it that you can't actually sum it up. Yeah. And then he goes on, uh, it's a magical spot location, a small village by the sea in East Cork, Ireland. And he explains how when he first visited Ballymaloo, when we met, and then a couple of things just around he and I knowing each other um, that you know also makes it relevant why he would write forward. So it's very sweet. But when I read it, I actually did cry. And I, I feel like I hadn't cried in years before that moment. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, you're growing up, you don't cry that often. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to write a new, a new book now um, for your next cry. Oh, Jesus, I can't ever imagine doing it again. Tell us about the process, because I don't think anyone knows what's really involved. Like, how, when did, let's say, the first whisper of the idea that you were going to actually publish and complete a book happen? So it, the conversation started about 10 years ago when Hazel Allen one day said to me, would you write, would you consider writing a small book that we could sell on the hall table? And... You know, obviously writing a book was an ambition. I think anyone who cooks, you know, mm. the idea of writing a book is very appealing and it's in the back mm. of your mind. And when she said it to me, I was delighted, but I took a bit of time to think about it and I just couldn't actually imagine what that book would look like. Mm. And like, what is a small book to sell from the hall table? Is it just like 10 of our favorite recipes? Is it something I'm inventing? Mm. And I just couldn't imagine the shape of the whole thing. So anyway, I literally left the idea sitting on the shelf and Every year or two, Hazel would give me another little poke and say, oh, how about that book thing? It would usually coincide when, you know, um, we, we someone might write something nice about the desserts or some bit of feedback would come in and then Hazel would say, oh, you know, maybe, you know, the book thing. And I just, I guess I didn't have the confidence at the time to go about it. And I couldn't imagine uh, what exactly the book was. And then there were a couple of things that actually helped me form the idea in my head. One was dinner with David Tannis at a friend's house. And uh, I had brought the dessert, it was a cherry galette. And when David tasted some of the galette, he said to me, you need to write a book. Wow. And, you know, I, I did my usual thing where I clammed up a little and I said, oh yeah, you know, I, I love that idea, but, but, and he said, no, no, you need to write a book and I'd love to help you do it. Wow. And I said, okay, okay. so how, how do I write a book? You know, or, you know, what, what do I need to do first? And he said, well, first of all, you need to get an agent. And immediately I sort of resisted and I said, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, I'm in Ireland. Why would I need an agent to write a book? And he said, no, look, I, I'm giving you advice. Just listen for a minute. He said, you need to get an agent because they'll help you get the publisher. And a good publisher will help you make the book that you dream of. So after that dinner, I realized I needed to get an agent. So I, a few weeks later, flew to London and I met everyone I knew who had produced a book. And I asked them, how did they find an agent? Who were their agents? And, you know, what was the introduction? And because I did a bit of Googling, realized that all of the people I knew and admired who had written books, they all had different agents, which was to my surprise, because I thought surely there must be one agent who has a lot of them. But that wasn't the case. So I made a list of all the agents and I was getting my head into the space. And anyway, a month later, I was in New York doing... A dessert trolley pop-up at my friend's restaurant in the West Village, so a great restaurant called King, with some past students of the school run. And Claire, um, one, one of the owners of the restaurant, said to me, 
well, you should be writing a book. And I was like, oh, you know, funny, oh. that keeps coming up at the moment. Mm. And she said, and I'd love to introduce you to my agent while you're here. So like, I mean, this was a dream for me. You know, I'm in New York doing a pop-up and someone says, oh, meet an agent. So anyway, three days later, I'm on 48th, 2nd Avenue, you know, on the 40th <laughs> floor of a skyscraper meeting an agent. So it was a pinchy moment. It was, it was mad. And like, actually that day I was coming down with a cold or something, like I could feel it. And I, I literally walked into the agent's office and I excused myself straight and I said, look, I just have to tell you, if I don't dazzle you today, it's because I think I'm coming down with a cold. And she went and got me a vitamin C drink. So we chatted for an hour and uh, I just, I, I really liked her. She gave me some great advice. And then I went and met some other agents after that. Um, and But I kept thinking back to this first agent I met partly because she was so kind to me that day and, mm. you know, the empathy, but also uh, she connected with the ideas I was giving her. And I felt like she was really thinking about what I was saying as we were talking for that hour. So met, anyway, I met some other agents and then I flew home from the trip a month later. And two weeks after that, there was the first lockdown. So on the very first day of the lockdown, I emailed Carrie Stewart and said, mm. here's my sample book proposal. And she took me on. So then that's oh. really what got the ball rolling. Wow. 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 That that's an that's an amazing an amazing story. Tell us what was it like then when you were writing the text because we're all in lockdown everyone's like literally baking. locked away from each other. <laughs> Everyone yeah. else is like baking. Yeah. Trying so, to yeah. trying to use bakery books and you're creating one. So um well well, first, I was very happy when an agent decided she wanted to take me on. I was thrilled because, you know, this was like step one. Step one yeah. of David's advice was get an agent. And I was like, tick. So basically, bookmaking had begun. I'd started writing the book proposal. I had got my head around what content I'd want in it. But in my original book proposal, the, my idea in my head at the time was to have this book about trolleys because okay. the desserts in Ballymlure are served from a trolley. And... Uh, it's it's quite unusual and it's becoming more unusual because trolleys take up space on a dining room floor mm-hmm. and every square meter of a dining room is real, real estate space that you're renting, you know, unless you own mm-hmm. your premises. So most small restaurants can't have trolleys. So it's, it's an unusual thing to have a trolley. So that was kind of one of the central points of the proposal where I was saying, you know, there are these recipes we've been using for over half a century in this place. And there's a reason mm-hmm. why we love them and why they work. Mm-hmm. It's the story about the produce but then I also wanted to fit in the story about the trolley. So I was joking yeah. at the beginning that I'd call the book off my trolley. But uh, and, and my agent sort of, you know, you know, held my hand in this and was like, OK, well, we'll, we'll roll with this a little bit. And anyway, when the book proposal was ready, she handed it out to uh, 10 of the best publishers in the US. Now, I must say, originally, my idea was not to go and try and get an American agent or uh, an American publisher. I probably in the back of my mind before I before all of that happened assumed I would have done it with someone in Ireland or London because that mm-hmm. felt like the very obvious thing to do um but anyway that wasn't just the way things worked out so anyway the next thing she had passed out the book proposal and the very first offer to come in was from Fidon who mm-hmm. is the publisher who I ended up going with and when the offer came in uh Carrie the agent set up a meeting between the commissioning editor or the potential commissioning editor of the book who sent the um, offer uh, for the proposal and in that one hour meeting with Emily um, she she immediately reframed the book without changing any of the content she said so how about this instead of being a trolley book about desserts how about being a dessert book flavored with trolley 
And I, <laughs> it sounds like a really simple shift, but actually, as soon as she said it, it completely made sense. Because then everybody who connects to desserts and loves eating desserts or loves making desserts or, you know, enjoys that treat. Um, the forward thing in the book is the fact that it's about desserts. And then I could thread this story about using a trolley for serving them through it. So yeah. as soon as she suggested that, I could even I could see the book more clearly and I knew I wanted to go with her. So then I had a publisher. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. And it's it's like a lot of books have come from Ballymaloo for a very yeah, long it's, time. Yeah, it's, it's one I'm, in a long line. Yeah, but I'm surprised that you managed to find your own way so much in terms of agent and publisher and everything. It's It's... It's great to see that you managed to find something that was completely personal to yourself rather than kind of following in the natural path of everybody else there who's writing books, you know? Yeah, I, I think I did that on purpose as well. You know, I've been here for about 20 years now and I've worked so closely with, you know, people throughout the whole business and I, mm -hmm. I, I see what they do and I hugely admire it. And I also love that each person makes their contribution their own way mm -hmm. and, you know, takes their own path. So... I sort of felt like for this, I wanted to take a bit of my own path as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, obviously um, in uh, doing everything, you know, in, in the best way I could, knowing that people in Ballymere would be happy with it. So I was very happy when I was able to go down this new road that no one else here had taken yet. That's amazing. Yeah. And from so like literally the pandemic was only two years ago and it's amazing to have that book in print. What happened after you wrote the text and, and you had the recipes design or I suppose decided on like how did yeah. it all come together then like in terms of the design and the photography and kind of shooting all that how, did, how what, what was the process in between there yeah so well with the recipes a lot of the work on the recipes I have been doing before I had an agent actually I'd been mm. keeping documents I had hundreds of documents in my uh, google folders for years and I was always kind of thinking in the back of my mind if there was a book you know what might go into it mm. And so when we when we really got down to the nitty gritty of the bookmaking process, I we, we designed a table of contents, which were all of the recipes that would go into the book and um, what what order they'd come in, what order the chapters would come in, what each chapter would be, how the chapters could be introduced. And that's the blueprint then that we used for the rest of the process. Mm -hmm. So uh, very fortunately, Fidon cast a really wide net when it comes to finding the best team to work with. Mm -hmm. So they took on a great project editor, um, Claire Rogers. And then they, as Emily said, scoured the globe for a designer for the book. So they ended up hiring Apartamento Studios, who are best okay. known for making Apartamento magazine. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people might be familiar with it. It's a really beautiful kind of arts lifestyle magazine, a very edgy and very design driven. So they were employed to be the designer and they designed the cover the interior and the touch and feel of the whole thing. Um, and so they were doing a lot of their work in the background. But the bit that I was most involved with after the writing was the photography. So we were in the middle of the second lockdown. And it's when we were choosing what photographer to hire for the book. And Emily said to me, who would you like us to consider? And I said, well, actually, I'd love it to be someone Irish. And... Um, I have a very short list for you. And there was only one name on it. Mm -hmm. And that was Kleena Prendergast. Literally, mm -hmm. she was the only name I put forward to them for consideration. And fortunately, they unanimously approved her at their design meeting Amazing. that week. And so then Kleena came on board. Beautiful. Yeah. That, is, that is fantastic. And it looks 
absolutely amazing. You're holding it up to us there on the video screen and people are going to be able to actually get this in their hands very, very soon. So what's the plan actually for launching it, JR? So there's a couple of parties. Uh, we're going to have a large party in Ballymaloo to thank all our friends and neighbours and anyone who helped out with it. And so that'll be a bit of fun. And that's just kind of the first bit of the splash. Then soon after, um, I go to London to do a counter takeover at Violet Bakery, Claire Patak's Bakery in East London. Then I'm doing a dessert takeover at Spring with Sky Gingle. So that's a dinner for 100 people, um, which sold out, sold out um, shortly after announcing it, which is very exciting. Um, but for anyone who couldn't get tickets to that, there are lots of other events. You just have to travel a little further. So uh, in Chicago, there's going to be, it's either a bakery takeover or a, a dinner. We're working out the details of that now. That'll be the very end of September. And then in New York, I'm doing a Sunday lunch at King, the restaurant where it all started when I did that first pop-up three years ago. Uh, so a dessert trolley is going to pop up there for Sunday lunch and um, we'll be selling tickets to that. And then on to Toronto to do a few more things. So that's the initial start of the tour. And then at the start of next year, it'll be San Francisco and Los Angeles. So we try to get out to um, people who I think will be really interested in uh, what's inside the cover. Amazing. uh, And I love a day out. So, you know, it's great to be able to travel around. Wow. What an an amazing first. You have to come. Hugely inspiring. (laughs) Um, Do you have any advice like for people who are listening that might even think about starting a book themselves like how or, or going on this type of journey what what would you say to them yeah well for me it was very slow and steady and it took a lot of people's encouragement to get me to the point where I was going to do it mm-hmm. but definitely I think whether you're making a book or whether you're doing you know whatever the project is having a good mentor is very important mm-hmm. and you know when I started out cooking Mrs Allen was my mentor Roy O'Connell mentored me Darina mentored me and I had these very strong mentors that really helped me realize uh what what I was capable of and then when it came to the book to have someone like David Tannis and just for anyone who doesn't know David uh he writes monthly for the New York Times he used to be the head chef at Chez Panisse in California he's currently uh running a restaurant for Alice Waters in the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles and you know when someone like that uh gives you their vote of confidence and says they really want to help you but gives you good advice like that mentorship is very important so I think if you can connect with a good mentor, that will help you make good decisions. And certainly for me, that's mm. what helped me along the way. Yeah, amazing. Can we mm. uh, kind of perhaps go back into what you were doing well before you were a book author? Like, give people a little bit of a background on who you are, what you were doing up until your present day job. Tell us a little bit about where you come from. Yeah, well, I come from Ballyhooley in North Cork, small town between Fermoy and Mallow, um, rolling countryside and all of that. So I grew up on a small farm. And um, actually, one of my very first memories is Ballymaloo. I really? was four years old and my aunt Evelyn, who worked at the cookery school, um, took me on a tour around the garden and the gardens and the farm. And at the end of that tour, I met Doreen Allen. And she signed a copy of her book for me. And inside the cover wrote, for John Robert, who will be a great chef when he grows up, love from Darina Allen, March 1992. So this is 30 years ago. And I know I was four because she wrote the date inside the cover. And I actually don't know any other memories in my head that I can 
you know, truly say are from before that or not, because it's very hard to remember. Okay. So growing up, I always had food in the back of my mind and certainly a seed was sown that day. I was also a huge fan of her TV show, Simply Delicious. It was literally my favorite <laughs> thing to watch. Like that episode. Age four, don't mind Bosco, <laughs> you're straight on to Darina. Like. <laughs> oh, well, no, but, yeah, Bosco's great too. But um, yeah, and Marion and Dave, shout out to them, the presenters used to love them and the magic door. But um, do you remember that episode of Simply Delicious where like Darina took an entire episode to make a Christmas cake? She had this big red basin. She's creaming the butter and sugar in it, adding the fruit bit by bit, da, 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 assembling the cake. But I just remember how soft the butter was when she creamed it under the heat of the studio lamps. And I grew up in a really cold house, but I used to make cakes when I was a kid. And the butter was always really hard. And I had this sort of envy for, you know, this type of cake Darina was making. So there were lots of little things along the way that, you know, I, I found her hugely aspirational for me. And I, I connected with her message. So... Growing up, food was always something I was interested in. I loved tasting things, but we didn't eat wild things at home. You know, my mother was a traditional cook, but cooked mm. really well. So, you know, we wouldn't have been having monkfish as a weeknight supper or mm-hmm. we wouldn't have been having, you know, overly exotic things. But we ate really delicious food and very nourishing stuff. So when I did get into my teens, I actually remember the very first time I tasted a lime. I was in a supermarket. Um, I must have been like six or seven years old. I was in the supermarket mum and Moy. And beside the lemons, there were limes. And I picked one up and I was like, oh, what's this? And so that's a lime. I said, oh, will you get me one? So she bought me a lime and I went home and cut it open. And I remember tasting the juice. And I it was the most acidic thing I had tasted at that age. And I remember it so clearly. So well, just going back, like I always cared about flavor. And I was interested in mm-hmm. what flavor was and what it did, how mm-hmm. you'd feel around it. Mm-hmm. So when I then, you know, a little bit fast forward a bit. So. I was sent to boarding school. Well, it was a good thing. I was no, I was sent to boarding school. I went to boarding school. And uh, through the jigs and the reels, I ended up getting a Saturday job at Ballymaloo House. So okay. I'd get a taxi from the boarding school to Ballymaloo on a Saturday morning. And I'd work for the day and then take a taxi back to school at the end of the day. And those few years popping in on the Saturdays to Ballymaloo was eye-opening because every day when I'd go in, I'd taste new things I'd never seen before food mm-hmm. that we wouldn't have cooked at home or you know it was really it was just it was wonderful it's exactly what I wanted and so at that point I had I hadn't really decided if I really wanted to become a full-time chef but I was satisfying my craving for tasting and learning techniques and actually when I finished school I went and studied biochemistry because really? all my yeah. friends were going to college and I thought oh I should do that too uh, so yeah I ended up doing a natural science course but I kept working in Ballymaloo all those years and never left. And I suddenly realized years into this part-time work in Ballymaloo that actually it was for me. And that's when I kind of jumped in the deep end. But um, yeah, so that was the, the, yeah, the sort of the scenic route into getting a job as a pastry chef. So you never worked in uh, the, the biosciences, did you? No, not at all. No, it was a great course. I loved it. Yeah. Um, you know, I got to live in Dublin for four years. I like great fun, made great friends. You know, there's still some of my dearest friends. Um, I kind of got, you know, out of my system what I needed to get out, just yeah. being a student. But um, I think doing all, the, you know, doing different things that helped me realize, like, what actually really satisfies me. And it yeah. is cooking and it is eating. Yeah. yeah, it's not the wildest divergence of a course either. Like, I would imagine that biological sciences has a little bit of an overlap inside the idea of pastry yeah although you know i don't yeah i can't say i'm dragging the rotary evaporator into the pastry 
and, and tell me, yeah. why do they put you in the sweets kitchen? Like, have you always had a sweet tooth, or um, what's the connection there? Well, I was, yeah, I was sort of well. So when I was cooking at home, um, as as a kid, anytime I wanted to do something, people would say, "Oh, you know, make a cake, make make mm. biscuits, make cookies, make bread," because that's that's really what kids are allowed to do. No one's going to hand you a leg of lamb and say, you know, roast that for supper. So I was making cakes and doing sweet things before I cooked anything else. They were the first things I learned. And so gradually then as friends of the family knew I was interested in this, for a birthday or Christmas, I'd get a baking book. Mm. And then I'd try the more ambitious recipes from them. And it just kind of became my thing that, okay. you know, pastry was something I was into. And then actually, the very first day I went to Ballymaloo House, I was doing work experience at the cookery school when I was 15. And at the end of one day, Dorina said to me, I'd love to send you to the kitchen in Ballymaloo House. It would be great for you to see a professional kitchen because I can see you're so interested in what's mm-hmm. going on here. You know, go over and see the restaurant. So I went over that evening to the restaurant and I wasn't in pastry at all. I was uh, in the cold kitchen uh, watching them plate up the salads. I still remember I tasted a lemon verbena sorbet. It blew my mind, the flavor. I'd never <laughs> had lemon verbena before. There was a chilled cucumber soup with yogurt and petals. It was like sort of thing I dreamt about tasting. Like there were things in the menu. I didn't even know what they were. And uh, at the end of the night, I was asked to do one job and it was to carry a tray of salad over to one of the cold rooms. I was wearing a pair of sneakers and the kitchen floor was this like, you know, literally slippery as ice tiled floor at the time. And I slipped and flung the tray across the room and I fell onto my back and everyone spun <laughs> around and was like, oh my God, who's the kid that fell? And I was mortified. <laughs> Look at me now, so bitches, hard. I wrote the book. Lettuces everywhere, fiasco. <laughs> um, and so anyway, like I sweep the lettuce, I'll put it in the hen bin and you know, skulk out of the kitchen. And I, I remember the feeling that I, I kind of thought, actually, do you know what? Like a professional kitchen isn't for me. And then the next day I'm back in the cookery school and Darina calls me into the office and says, she didn't even ask me. She just said, I bet you had a wonderful time in the kitchen tonight. I'll send you again tonight. And she picks up the phone in front of me, calls Rory O'Connell, who was head chef at the time, says, Rory, I'm sending JR over again. He had such a good time. And in the back of my head, I was saying, I haven't even told you I enjoyed it, Doreen. Like, I actually don't want to go. But I didn't say it. But anyway, so I bit my tongue. Went back that next evening, or that evening, and uh, they put me in the pastry kitchen, which was a room of its own down the back. So all the kids, all the chefs who watched me fall, like I couldn't even see them, it was perfect. And that day, that evening, I saw the biggest batch of meringue being made I'd ever seen in my life. And I had to dip, dip truffles in chocolate. But like it was the chocolate, the quality of it was better than anything we'd ever had at home. Mm-hmm. And the at the end of that shift, like I really felt like there was something in that kitchen that I wanted. So mm-hmm. I asked them, could I come back? And that was it. That was the beginning of me going into the pastry kitchen. So I volunteered and then I got a job. And yeah, that was that. What year was that then, J.R.? Sorry, that you started in the pastry kitchen. That was 2003, 2004. Um, My earliest. And and how old were you about? Like kind of you're you're still you're still in school doing this is weekend work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was in school. Yeah, I was like this is on my summer holidays. And then at the end of the summer after volunteering. So I stayed at my aunt's house and I'd cycle over work for the day. Then I went back to school and during the first week of school, Rory O'Connell left a voicemail on my phone that I got after class offering me uh, the Saturday job saying, you know, if you'd like to come in and work one shift a week on a Saturday, you know, we'd love to have you join the pastry team. So obviously I was like the bottom of the ladder, you know, coming in to to learn and do the simplest jobs. But 
like I remember how happy I felt that day when I heard that, that message. Like I listened to it like four or five times. Um, it, was just, it was exactly what I needed at that point. And now you are the head pastry chef. Is that is that your title, or what? What is what is? Your yeah, title exactly. Yeah. So I'm the head pastry chef. So essentially, in the pastry kitchen, we make everything with sugar, flour, and fruit. So mm-hmm. breads, pastries, cakes, biscuits, sorbets, mousses, frozen desserts, special orders that involve anything sweet. Um, so all of those things, yeah, come under the. Absolutely gorgeous. For me, dinner is not complete until I have a sweet. Would you agree? Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, do you know what? I don't think we always have to have dessert at the end of every meal. And for me, dessert is definitely something I love to have at the table with friends. So mm-hmm. when you are having a special meal, that's when I think it's time to make a really nice dessert. But personally, I don't actually eat dessert after every meal. Like sometimes I'll have a boiled egg for supper. I might have a finger of fruitcake or something. Mm. But um, when it comes to having proper desserts, yeah, definitely something to be shared. Yeah. Favourite dessert, J.R.? Oh, it kind of depends where I am and the time of year. It's usually the thing I haven't had in ages. So if I see, yeah. like, if I'm looking at a menu, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and like, you know, if you haven't had cherries and suddenly it's cherry season, it's a cherry dessert, you're like, oh, damn, I'm going to get that. So yeah. usually the, my favorite thing, yeah, it changes every week. It changes every week, de- depending on what's there. Can we go back to the book? Like, so you've basically put lots of stories about desserts throughout the book. Is that correct? Like yeah. that about the, about the the trolley the experience. Is there different stories for each of the recipes or? Yeah, so, or so how, every how recipe has an opener, where I yeah some of them are little stories around the recipe how we ended up with it because well, I suppose what I should say is that you know throughout the year in Ballymere we change the menu every day so we mm-hmm. have a repertoire of hundreds of recipes we use mm-hmm. and I've distilled that down to the ones that I think are really essential so every recipe in the book has completely earned its place. Because some, mm. someone asked me the other day, oh, what's your favorite recipe in the book? And I couldn't even answer that because, mm. like, you know, I feel like every single one of them deserves to be there. Mm. And because those recipes deserve to be there, there's a lot to be said for them and mm. to say about them. So each recipe gets a, an opener, an introduction where sometimes it's, it's something about the dish that I think might be interesting. Sometimes it's the story about how the recipe ended up with us. Mm. Or, you know, it might be some little funny thing that happened, like, you know, the time Mrs. Allen set her hair on fire making crepes Suzette, or, you know, <laughs> the very apple cake that literally crossed, you know, through the ocean coming from Germany with the Bowers when they came here in 1948, or you know, even just more recent things where something came by by accident. So, it, you know, it gives the recipes a reason for being in that book and a reason why we use them. Um, and then in the chapter openers, I kind of dive into the topics. Like, so in the meringue chapter opener, it's like, just trying to explain, you know, why personally I really like meringue desserts, why I think they're interesting, why they can suit almost any occasion. And then also tips that might be useful for the very beginner who's never made a meringue. But yeah. if you're used to making meringues, there might be one or two bits of information in there that's actually really interesting that kind of helps you up your meringue game, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, kind of that's sort of the, 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 the gist. gist content. Is, the, is there any particular story that you want to read out from the um, Like, do you want me to read one to you? I would love you to read one to me. Oh, yeah. Pick, okay. pick, pick, out, pick out a nice one there. Okay. Here's one for Green Gooseberry Fool. Okay. Um, and the idea, it's, it's, actually, it's not even a very long story. I, I actually picked this because it's not too long. But, um, I mean, Gooseberry Fool, a lot of people mightn't even have had it. So a fool is fruit puree that's been folded into whipped cream. It's a very old-fashioned dessert. We, uh, typical to Britain and Ireland. But we make lots of different fools. Surprisingly anyway, light. Pardon? Yeah, it's light. So um, I'll just I'll actually hold it up so you can see a picture of it oh beautiful yeah so um 
Mr. Monroe brings boxes of his homegrown gooseberries to Ballymaloo Kitchen each summer. He conscientiously segregates the crop by variety, early sulphur, careless, invicta, and so on. Each variety has its merits. Early sulphur turns yellow and sweet when ripe, and is quite pleasant to eat raw. Careless and invicta, on the other hand, remain green and hold on to some of their tartness as the season progresses. These later varieties are best suited to cooking, and they work particularly well in tarts, jams, compotes, and fools. In this recipe, the mouth-watering acidity of the tart green gooseberries is softened by the heady muscat scent of elderflower. The flavours are a perfect combination. Amazing. You're That's making me crave uh, gooseberries. <laughs> yeah. I don't get gooseberries where I am. Oh, yeah, no, they they yeah. tend to grow better in cold climates, mm -hmm. but um, and it's a berry that like I think a lot of people don't you won't see it in a market. It's the least commercial berry out there. Mm, like yeah. you, you'll never see them in a supermarket. Yeah. So unless you have a bush, or you know somebody grows them. Chances are, you know, it's you're not going to come across them too often. So it takes people by surprise when they have a dessert like that because we all like I mean the gooseberry's always been the joke, isn't it? Like look at the gooseberry in the corner or you know, can I come along or will I be the gooseberry? But then you know you give someone a gooseberry fool and it's the star of the show. So it's uh it's quite oh, nice to find a spotlight. And actually maybe something else I can say about the book is uh like a lot a lot of the recipes we've been using, we've been using them for so long, you know, for over half a century in the restaurant of Ballymaloo, because the restaurant opened in nineteen sixty four. But so many of these recipes have been around for so much longer than that. And I'm not claiming I invented these. I mean, who invented Victoria Sponge? So it's mm -hmm. not like they're mine, but they're the recipes that we currently use. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but the point I want to make actually is that even though some of these recipes have been around the block, um, I'm hoping that the book shines a spotlight on how useful some of these dishes that might otherwise be seen as being sort of outdated can be, like the idea yeah. of a gelatine set mousse. Yeah. But when you do make it properly, it's such a showstopper and so beautiful mm. that actually it can be easily as contemporary as the cronut or any other you know fad or trend that's coming around. So a, a lot of what I've tried to do in writing the chapter openers is to give a little bit of life to things that other people, other, things that people may otherwise not consider making as a dessert, or they might yeah. just think, oh, that seems a bit old fashioned. But yeah. uh, maybe it's, you know, a gateway. That's gorgeous, Tara. That's absolutely lovely. Um, where do you think you get your most uh, inspiration from? Where do you gather most of your inspiration? Um, I get it from the people I meet, really. I mean, mm. that and the yeah. produce. You know, so, yeah. sometimes you just, you know, you, you, you see a perfect pear or whatever it is. And I mean, that's, it's, it's such a cliche, isn't it? It's all the chefs say. They'll always talk about a peach or a pear or something. But actually, when you do have the really good ones, um. You just think, you know, I want to make something with that. I want to do something with it. But most of my inspiration, being, if I'm being honest, is from the people I know, my friends, yeah. the people I follow. You, you mm. often see someone do something that you do, but they're mm. doing it slightly differently. And suddenly the cogs start turning. Mm. And then you think, hey, you could do it differently. And, you know, the aim would never be to imitate someone, but like it can be inspiring. You suddenly see someone just coming from a different angle, you know, not always going through the same drawer with the thing. And then, mm. you know, it opens your mind. And then the next time you're making it, if you have that spare 10 minutes, you just try that gentle mm. to help something evolve. And I don't like change for the sake of it. But sometimes if you change something just gently, particularly those older recipes, and it breathes new life into it, it's really satisfying. Yeah. So that yeah, a lot of that inspiration for me comes from, yeah, the people I know and admire. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. That's really...
can you just talk a little bit about shooting the photography for the book? Because I think everyone is always fascinated by the idea of that moment coming when you have written this big collection of recipes and you have to shoot all that. Like, does it all happen smack bang one after the other? Who's in there? Is J.R. making a hundred? Did you say there's a hundred recipes in your book? Yeah, there's a hundred main, there's over 130 recipes in the book, but a hundred of those are main dishes and every single dish gets a photograph. So uh, from the point of view of this project, it was, yeah, there was a lot of imagery that had to be created to go into the book. Like, how does that, ha- like, how does a hundred recipes get, get, I mean, not it's even a, it's just It's a lot like, of blood, sweat and tears, Yeah, Jack, but yeah, like, not even just I actually made. walked in and then one day they were like, how do I set this on fire? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't fall off the back of a lorry, that's for sure. It's uh, a lot of planning and work. So it, it's yeah. different for every book. Some people will schedule a two or three week shoot and they'll, they'll have a professional studio. They'll do so many photos every day, you know, in consecutive days, the shoot is done. But that was never going to work for me because um, I am a working class girl. You have a trolley to fill every I have day, JR. <laughs> and um, and uh, I must say as well, a, we have an amazing pastry team in Ballymaloo. So while I was doing the book thing and uh, getting the nitty gritty done and doing the photographs, I had a huge amount of support. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, I do have a day job, which yeah involves the trolley. So I'd work during the week. Um, I'd do my five days of work. And then for the two days I was off, Kina would drive from Connemara, so Kina Prendergast, photographer, would drive from Connemara. And uh, the night before we would start taking the photographs, I'd prep as much as I could the day before. And then, you know, we'd get up at half five or six in the morning, usually go for a swim in the sea. So we were, you know, in the zone, centered, all of that. And um, yeah, we'd hit the ground running. So each day we'd try and do between seven and nine images, depending on what the dishes were and what they'd take. So for all the images in the book, we did seven different photo shoots. Each shoot was either two or three days. So in total, we did 15 days of shooting. That doesn't include the, the days of prep beforehand or the post-production work that Kina did, which would have been weeks and weeks of other work. And that's before we hand the photographs to the publisher for them to select and then for the designers to work with and position. So it's, it's kind of a mammoth project. But for me, it's kind of like when you're studying history in school and you know you start with the French Revolution, you don't study everything at once. So, or, you know, you start with whatever, you know, makes sense. So I would pick the recipes that made sense to do that week based on the produce that was there. I was just going to so say, because it's we had to do the gooseberry ones first, because, you know, exactly, there, wouldn't, yeah. there mm. wouldn't be a gooseberry to be found in September and, you know, so on. We kind of, so we, I, we picked the dishes, picked the order they should be photographed in. Then I'd run around to all the houses locally. Um, well, like a couple of friends around here have nice houses full of lovely um, plates and glassware and I have some of it myself Ballymaloo had some and then for each dish I'd pick maybe between two and four potential plates that it could be photographed on bring them to the pop-up studio that we made and then we'd photograph each dish on different wear on different surfaces top down side on um, so I must say Kleena had the patience of a, sh- a saint dealing with me and I so I would cook the dish style it bring it to the um, table we were photographing on or the area then Kleena would also style it with me to make sure it was suitable for the camera we'd get the light right and then she'd start taking the images so a huge amount of work went into everyone and you know sometimes we'd take a photograph of something and at the end of the day we'd we'd scrutinize every image and uh, Emily the editor had this saying that if something 
didn't quite have the right feeling for the book. She'd say, that's for another book. So Keen and I would look at the photo and sometimes we'd say, you know, it's great, but it's actually for another book. And we'd redo mm. that dish and shot again. Mm. And you'd learn something every time, you know, we got yeah. better as we went along. Or sometimes there'd be a detail in the dish and I would just feel it didn't illustrate the recipe properly. And I'd say, look, we have to do that one again. And then sometimes, mm. you know, uh, some things are inevitable. Like at one point we were using the attic of Ballymaloo, which is on the third floor of the oldest part of the house. You know, running up this staircase in the 1700s with an ice cream bomb. By the time I got to the top, the bomb was melting in my hands. So, you know, <laughs> that took about three goes. So there are all sorts of things along the way where, um, you know, I was a rookie to a clean. I had experience in it, thankfully. But um, yeah, it was great. I, it was It was actually great fun. And you were there for some of it, Jolene, as well. I'm, I, I popped my head in all right one day. And, yeah, you were there uh, for yeah, Tom Bain prepped his ads. And actually, that, that photo as well, that ended up being one of those photos we said, that's for another book. Yeah. But we tried along the way to do lots of things just to, you know, experiment a little bit, even though we, you know, we kind of knew what we were trying to do. Fight on the publisher gave us a very clear design directive. They needed lots of space around every dish. Mm -hmm. They wanted several options of each dish in particular ways. They they didn't want something that was green on a green plate on a green cloth. So there were these, this kind of, this not rules, but um, advice that they had given to help us create a collection of photos that would like sing together. And actually in that very first meeting I had with Emily at the beginning of the project, she said, when this book is finished, when somebody picks it up, I want it to feel like a breath of fresh air. Mm -hmm. So when Keen and I would look at all the photos at the end of every day, we would say to each other, is it a breath of fresh air? And so hopefully when people open the book, that's what they feel, because that's uh, that's the lens. Amazing. On it. Well, what, what, a, what a wonderful insight into that process. That was uh, that was fantastic. And such a collaboration, obviously, between you and um, Kleena, but like everyone as well, as well. All that input like makes such a difference, doesn't it? To the book oh, the my God. The there's day. so many hands involved in making a book. I yeah. had no idea. Like there are three editors working on it. It's that is amazing. Incredible. Yeah. Um, amazing. Yeah. So many people. So thank you, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think the day would come? <laughs> no. no, I didn't. It's a dream come true. You know, it's, it really is. It's, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I can't so wait to share it with everyone. Where can people get it, Jay? Or what's the, the story with the book release? Is it on the shelves yet? Where are we now? We're in September, yeah. beginning of September. So, yeah, so there's two dates. On the 29th of September, it's going to be available everywhere books are sold in the UK and Ireland. And then on the 12th of October, it's going to be available across North America. Um, it'll also be available in Australia before that. So worldwide from the 12th of October, everywhere books are, are sold. Yeah, so you can get it on the publisher's website, fidon.com. Um, mm -hmm. If you're visiting Ballymaloo, we have some here. I'd be delighted to sign them for anyone if they'd like that. In the hallway. And, uh, or go to your local bookseller. Amazing, thank you. And when will your second book come out? I can't ever imagine doing another book. You know, it took me so long. Famous last words. <laughs> Like, you know, if, if I were really telling the truth, you know, the amount of time it took to get my head around it. So um, if if there's another book in me, I think it'll take a long time. I'm not I'm not trying to get into a career of um, just, you know, writing books for a career. I, I felt like I had this book in me and it took shape. And in many ways, it's a, a love letter to Myrtle Allen. I was thanking her for mm. inspiring me and for teaching me, because, like I said, a lot of these recipes, I haven't invented them and they're not mine. Some of them I've helped them evolve and I've, you know, tried to elevate them. And part of my own contribution, I suppose, is in the presentation and helping to give them that contemporary edge. But mm. um, 
I actually forgot what I was saying now. <laughs> it's that difficult second album. That's what you were saying. Oh yeah. You don't think you, you don't um, think you're going to be a book author? Yeah, like... I think because this one was sort of a labor of love for a reason. That yeah. um, yeah, I can't imagine the next one yet. So yeah. I do think. Do you always see your life in food from now on, or have you something else in the pipeline? I do. Whatever I do, it'll always be in food. Whether I'm standing in the same spot in the pastry kitchen in Ballymaloo in fifty years' time, while well, I'd be mm-hmm. in my eighties, then uh, you know I probably won't be. You know, the, the nature of this job is that, you know, it, it lasts for so long and then uh, something else will come along. But my other passion is travel. I'd love to travel the world for a year or two and work with all the great mm-hmm. people, go to Australia and work on Maggie Beer's farm, go to California, spend some time in those beautiful bakeries and restaurants that I adore, mm-hmm. go to France and pick grapes. All the things I've never done because, you know, I've, I've had great opportunities, but I've always been in a restaurant kitchen. And yeah. I think... If there is something next, it'll be in food, but maybe, you know, with fewer walls around me, it might be a little bit more uh, on the road. I would love if you could share a really easy, has to be easy now, but delicious recipe. Could you do that? Yeah, well, I could, this and is what would you my... pick and why? Uh Okay, so I'm going to share the almond tartlets. This is a Ballymaloo classic. We've been making okay. since the 1960s. And you only need three ingredients. So okay, butter, gotcha. sugar, and almonds. And the same weight of each. So it can be, you know, one ounce of each, four ounces of each, a pound of each. You can scale it up or down. So very right. easy to remember. So however many ground almonds you have, weigh the same weight of sugar and soft butter. You mix the three together with a wooden spoon in a bowl, and that's the mix okay. made. You press the mix into... Either a, a sandwich cake tin or it could be a little bun tin. Uh-huh. Bake it for 15 minutes at 180 degrees and you've got the most beautiful, brittle, crisp, caramelized almond base. And put whatever base put, and you can put whatever fruit you want on top. So at the moment, because it's September, I'd be using raspberries. And raspberries and almonds, like such a stunning combination. Mm. Summer you could put a fan of sliced peaches. Um Sometimes in wintertime, you might peel some grapes. I know it sounds extravagant, but it's such a beautiful mm. thing. You know, tender peeled grapes and the nice crisp almond base. Um, and in spring, you might have pieces of baked rhubarb. So it's a really handy recipe. You know, it's very easy to make. Most people will have those three ingredients at home. Um, and, you know, in 20 minutes, you'll have something beautiful. Oh, it's it. in the book. <laughs> love it. Love it. And I love that you brought the seasonality into it, too. That's That's really important, isn't it? Oh, totally. Well, that's sort of that's the point of what we do, because, you know, I suppose my own philosophy and this is what I inherited from Mrs. Allen. And, you know, she drip fed it to me every day when we cooked together over all those years was to never overlook what's around you for something else. Mm. And that was really Mrs. Allen's North Star, that she focused on the immediate things that were around her and needed to be used, the Mm. things on her trees, the things on her neighbor's trees never minding what was on the trees in other countries and what mm-hmm. was being imported. And when you use that as your decision-making process and the lens through cooking, uh, food just sort of makes more sense where you are because you're eating food from the place. The flavor is better because it's mm-hmm. you know fresh from the locality and you feel good about it because you know, you're just doing something that, you know, it's, it's the proper way to cook. You're cooking what's there in front of you. And um, actually I'd love to just mention about Mrs. Allen and cooking with her and really the thing that, I could see that she always did that made her different to other cooks that I'd been watching on television growing up. Like when I, when I came to Ballymaloo and I saw her decision-making process, it was always focusing on elevating the vernacular 
these things that could be very ordinary, but making them exceptional by focusing on detail. And it was simply sourcing the right plums or making sure the butter was the best or that the eggs were day fresh. So when someone ate that sponge cake or that, you know, literally it was like an oven fresh coffee cake that the cake is barely cooled when the frosting or the icing goes on. So -hmm. when you have it, you literally say to yourself, I've never had one this good, but you've had those things before. And that was what I learned from her. And um, so it's, it's, I, I remind myself of that all the time and it plays into the seasonality thing and not looking past what's in your own field. It's not the grass is greener. It's more what's here around me. So, so that sort of sums up the style of recipes in the book and the food that I like to cook. Amazing. Gorgeous. Thank you so much, JR. JR, that's been lovely. What a fantastic insight into you and your book and Valley Malou. An absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted. <laughs> delighted to be on with you. It's been a real treat. <laughs> okay, we'll see you soon. Bye. All right, um, Ballymaloo Desserts, it's out now. It's published by Fiden, as we've just heard. Um, it's available worldwide, and I hope you get yourself a copy. Yeah, and actually, just to say, JR is such a dote, no? <laughs> he's a dote. Like, he's actually such a dote. <laughs> he's very underst- Like, I've known him for quite a long time, like, yeah. you know, socially as a friend. Yeah. And he, he's so understated and he has so much respect for everyone around him Absolutely. and everything that they do. Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually really, really glad to see a book come from him as well because I, it's very honest. Like, it's a very honest book, you know. Yeah, and um, it's, it's got his fingerprint all over it. And as yeah. you said yourself, I mean, that's pretty hard to kind of like find that little niche within kind of the Institute of Ballymaloo that's got so many books and so many kind of like great food heroes already out there. Like, how do you make your own unique thing? And I think JR has absolutely got that down. Well done. We're and I also fans. have no doubt that he could have a career as a food writer, but it's not the point of the book. And doesn't that make it such a nicer book mm. as well, that it's not really about him or trying to move into some kind of a career. It's actually about bringing these recipes which as he said himself he you know he didn't write them or what he says i doubt that i'm pretty sure he's written many recipes come in here. there don't mind the book writing i think he's a great speaker too he you is. find that actually from the conversation he was just yeah. a joy to listen to i mean we just kind of prompted him a few things yeah. and jr just speaks so eloquently so lovely mm. and um i really enjoyed this podcast yeah like get the book but also if you can go down and eat some desserts in ballymillow house <laughs> that won't no? be hard go on we'll see you soon thank you jack thanks for listening guys um if you enjoyed the podcast of course subscribe give us a rating and we would love a review bye 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 (laughs) okay Bye, 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 bye. bye 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 bye